0: Community.
1: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to create diversity in thought without also creating division and community. I am your co-host, Matt Fisher. I'm the creative director here at Hill City Church, where we record most of our episodes, uh, but COVID has kind of continued to put, throw a wrench in that. Um, and I am here with my co-host, pastor of Hill City Church, Mr. John Wagler-Wags. What's going on, man? Yes,
2: sir. Was just in our auditorium checking it out because we don't have any AC in there, and seeing, hey, is this doable? And um, it's not. It is. It is not. <laughs> it oh, is. Smoking no, it would be doable.
1: It would be doable as like a reptile environment. <laughs> Of some kind. That's yeah. literally, that's what it feels like in there is like when you go to the zoo, there's like the reptile house. That's how it feels yeah. in that room.
2: I said, the only way that this is doable in this space is if we had one of those misters like at amusement parks, just on the stage. <laughs> I'm sure that's COVID safe, just like a mister. <laughs> uh,
1: but we will figure it out eventually. We got some outdoor services coming up and hopefully we're going to see each other again. But yeah. Until then. It'll I all work itself can. out. Oh. Eventually it will. Um, well, we are super excited today to have our dear friend and member of uh, our community here, Cherno. Um, Cherno uh, is a uh, assistant professor at VCU in the uh, Criminal Justice Department and also on the review board, a uh, citizen review board in Henrico County. Um, and we are super excited to have him here to share his perspective on what's going on um, from his sort of various varying backgrounds and and uh, and experiences. And also, he's just a great guy. We like having him around, and we <laughs> finally you, got you. to get him on the podcast because we've been wanting to thank for a while. You, thank you,
0: thank you, thank you. So, uh, Truno, welcome. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for having me on here. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Anything I share on here are my views and not the views for every black male or every police officer. These are just things that I've experienced. Uh, just Cherno's point of view. So yeah, that's thank you good. very it's much a- for having me. Wait, yeah, you absolutely. mean you
2: mean in tense discussions, you're not speaking for an entire race?
0: <laughs> just to be clear, or, perf- or, profession. <laughs> or profession? Just to be just to be clear, exactly. Um, the, right. these, yeah, we, these Cherno, yeah, these are Cherno's. is a view, which uh, we can we can. We can review and see if it applies to a majority. However, um, these are my experiences. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, um, before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah. You, uh, how did you get into sort of this line of work? What's your background in um, criminal justice and law enforcement? And just a little bit about Truneau. You're you're a husband and a, and a father. And Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, so tell us all about it.
0: Yeah, um, um, if you're familiar with the rebel war in Sierra Leone, West Africa, um, um, I'm from Sierra Leone, and Sierra Leone, if you've seen the movie Blood Diamonds, is basically um, about what happened in my country. There was a lot of resources, natural resources like diamonds, gold, and um, so it got in the hands of the wrong individuals, So, um, and those individuals misused their opportunities, and they Traveled out of the country and traded with um, other countries and then um, for arms and AK 47s, weapons and things as such. So they came into my country, uh, back to the country, um, uh, basically just really powerful with armed. And so uh, they questioned the form of government that was on there. So that's what started the Civil War. And so you hand guns to someone who. Who is from the provinces and the villages and who doesn't know how to use it felt powerful. And then so they started um, going into houses and uh, government buildings and looting things and robbing things and stealing things from folks. They even came to my house and um, they took over a lot of things from us. And standing there at 15 years old, seeing what my parents went through and seeing that half dressed camouflage uh, folks with handguns, uh, they were the rebels. They call them the RUF. Uh, Revolutionary United Front um, Militia Group. So they came into our house, uh, took things from us, stole things from us, t- uh, took things from my mom, and standing there as a 15-year-old boy, watching them um, just victimize us, that's when I made a conscious decision to say, I'm either going to go into a law enforcement or military because I would not want something like that to happen to my family again, All the people that I live with, or the community that I serve. So I migrated to the United States in '97 uh went to high school city hilton high school which was a predominantly white school in um, woodbridge prince william county and um, i had some alternative experiences out there too which i'll get into later on and then um i started doing internship with my local police department when i was about 16 17 and so i immersed myself into that culture as a a police officer because i've idolized it i've always wanted to be a police officer i dreamed about being a police officer So, um, but I didn't meet the age category. So at about 1920, when I graduated um, high school, went to Northern Virginia Community College, I still did internship work with the police department and went to Radford University, graduated from Radford, had some other experiences out there too with my colleagues, which I would mention again at some point. And um, we came um, and then graduated from there in 2004 came back to Prince William County, became a police officer in 2005, and I did about a decade of my life as a police officer. Um, so within that time, I did a number of jobs as a police officer. And um, so I, I left college, went straight into that lifestyle and that culture. So I immersed myself into that again. And um, all those years of being an intern and a police officer shaped my career and my views on a lot of things. And because some of the views that I came with as an immigrant to the United States did not match the expectations that I had, which I will get into. However, so I formed a culture that I felt acceptance from when I came to the United States. Um, so, um, But then I did, um, at about eight, nine years in, after I finished my master's and PhD, I started looking at how I treated folks on the street. And I started looking at how I was treated as a black police officer on the street. and. There was not much credibility and respect amongst my own peers and against the folks that I protect and serve. So I started questioning, do I want to stay in this field? And I was an adjunct too as well. So um, I would teach classes and I saw the goal and value in instructing criminal justice and um, talking about my experiences in the classroom. So I gained momentum and traction through that. And then that gave me the passion to teach. So about 2014 and 20. Uh, early 2013 and 2014 was when I started. I remember I was putting on my uniform one morning. The first one of the first incidents happened with, um, I believe it was Trevor Martin, and then the second one that was um, Tamir Rice uh, in 2014. And I remember I putting on my uniform and I put my uh, bulletproof vest on and I got the uh, uniform on and got my boots on and I saw the incident on on CNN and I was watching the news and never thought anything of it. And I just said it's just something that's just gonna go by and pass and it's just another uh, police shooting and it might be justifiable or not kept on going by my regular day the second or third incident was when I think it was with Michael Brown in 2014 still a police officer and I started looking at these things and I, and it just dawned on me saying this is this is a new age something has to be done and I started praying and asking what can I do to change this perception or what can I do to change this imbalance that I noticed And so uh, it came to me, and I denied it first. Uh, It came to me that I have to do it from the outside of policing. I loved policing. I've been around police officers since since actually 99 when I came to the United States. So for me, something to come to me and for God to reveal to me that I have to make a change outside of policing was pretty strange to me. So I basically asked God twice, two or three times, saying, are you sure you want me to do this? So, and uh, the answer came in, I spoke with my wife, um, Jennifer, who's also, uh, um, she was in law enforcement at that point as well. And so we talked about it, and the first thing she said was, yep, we're moving to Richmond. (laughs) And um, I basically said, nope, I'm not ready to give up the badge and the gun just yet, because I love it, this is my culture, and next thing you know, I'm applying for VCU, ODU, and all these um, universities, and VCU was one of the first ones to call and uh, we tore it down here, and I liked it, and I gave it all up, and then we moved down here to Richmond. Um, do I regret the choice? Probably not. Do I miss the folks that I work with? Yes, I do. And um, it's one of those things that it's a culture of mine. It's always going to stay with me. I will look at things the way it is, and I think I can affect it, try to bridge that gap that has been broken so bad from the outside. And uh, by just basically just speaking out and doing things like what we're doing here today. So... This is what I appreciate so much about this podcast, and we've seen the, um, the uh, separation between church and state for years, and this today is actually history in the making, wherein a church can actually host a conversation as such, wherein you bridge that gap between church, uh, church and state to say, let's have these conversations, let's have these difficult conversations, let's have these um, things on the table. What can a church do? What can a law enforcement advocate do? what can a police officer do what can a community member do so those are the things that i would feel that we can do and we can address and try to come to a uh, common ground as much as we can but so we moved down here to richmond in 2015 became a part of the church um august 2015 and we've been uh we've been members here ever since uh, we've got two small kids jameson which is five years old and eliza um three, three and a half years old. Basically, we dropped them off at daycare this morning for being with them since March 1st. I remember the exact date and <laughs> <in> time. <town. laughs> so we've been loving up on each other for three plus months straight. So um, it's kind of bittersweet right now. I miss them a lot, but I'm happy that they're in a good place right now. Yeah. So, You know, you mentioned um, your experience as a
2: black police officer, um, feeling like you were treated differently um, from both the people you're protecting and from Correct. the people you were working with. Can you talk about that just a little bit more like yeah, what was yeah. that like?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I can go all the way back to my high school years. And when I came to the United States as a immigrant, there was Hilton High School was 90 point something percent whites. And my my brother and I we were just the only African kids there. And that was a small percentage of black kids and we were attracted to them, we were drawn to them because uh natural selection, you want to go straight to um, the folks that look like you and so we did but apparently we had the most trouble with the folks that look like us we got into so many fights with black kids and I still didn't understand the differences there it was the white kids that asked us where are you from tell us about your house tell us about your family and the black kids were actually asking questions like what tree did you grow up in um, what kind of uh, food did you eat so our culture so it was a horrible culture shock and um it, it's not just those one similar incident uh, or those uh, few occasions that define my experience about the black experience here in the United States. It happened again in college. When I was in college, I played sports. Uh, my brother played basketball and I ran track, and uh, uh, the track team that was um, in Radford University that was predominantly black, black uh, track um, athletes there, And I try to fit in so much, and I try to compete so much, and I ran really well. And in my standards, I thought I did pretty good, but I never got the acceptance from the black um, athletes as much as possible, and I tried. And um, even when I got to become a police officer, I remember even my African family. So, you know, it's like, you know, I have a uh, sort of like an identity crisis, and this is something that I've struggled with for the longest time, and it's pretty recent that I'm starting to see where I fit. Um Even when I became a police officer, my African family did not like me to become a police officer because it's um, they see it as a it 's a dangerous job. Uh, law enforcement in Sierra Leone, where I'm from, it's um, uh, you can basically bribe your way out of things. So they see that same culture here in the United States. So they don't trust the police at all. Mm. And um, so they never supported me for that. And the black communities never supported me when I was a police officer. And I got called names and I got doors uh, shot right on me. And um, I would get pretty much, the, they have something called a click-click. When you, uh, if you're a black male, you're walking around and somebody's in their vehicle they, uh, you just hear the locks getting clicked down on you. That happened to me as a police officer, and I'm standing there thinking, "I'm here to protect you." And I had incidents where I would st- stop someone, pull them over, and um, and uh, f- uh, and I basically asked them for their driver's license and their registration, and they would uh, lower the window down this low and basically did not open the window to interact with me because they are just stereotyping me because of my race. And I remember the lady telling me. Um, can I see your ID, officer? Can I see that you are actually a police officer? And I normally didn't carry my ID on me, so I had to go dig through my bag and pull it out and gave it to her, and she said, drop it in the window. So by then, I was starting to get really pissed off. So I dropped the ID through the uh, window to her, and she looked at it, and then she called the 911 to verify that I was a police officer. And uh, she had ran a stoplight, and um, I was just going to let her off on a warning but after she had pissed me off really bad, and it was <laughs> colder that morning, so I ended up writing her, I think, two tickets that day. But we went to court, and then we joked about it, and uh, basically we dropped the charges. It was, um, it was an elderly white lady that actually was just—she uh, had just seen something on TV about police officers can take advantage of um, the elderly, or they can uh, actually stop you somewhere and then violate your rights and privileges. And so— I understood where she was coming from, but not at 32 degrees in the morning, at six o'clock in the morning when she was asking me, officers, show me your ID, and I'm standing there, blue lights, blue. Uh, I've got the badge, I've got every single thing in front of me. She still wanted to verify who I was, so I felt she was questioning me. But then um, after after a month went by, when we went to court, she, uh, and, and and we talked it out, I basically talked, talked her out of getting the ticket, and uh, we ended up dismissing it. But I'm seeing why those things happen. Because there's always a reason why folks respond to those things, because experiences have shaped them to actually act as such. And so uh, to answer your questions, yes, I've, I've basically not been accepted in any of those places. And it was not until I actually moved down to Richmond with, when I started actually having some one-on-one very good conversation. That's when I actually started understanding the black history. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate growing up in Africa. And you would think mostly where the slave trade was from, they don't teach us in school. It might have been changed by now. But uh, when I went to school in Africa, we have primary school and secondary school. We never we never was taught slavery at all, about slavery at all. Mm-hmm. We were taught about so I uh, to basically idolize the Western culture, Great Britain, London, uh, the United States. So we looked up to those things, and we heard the good things about it. The United States was called the land of the opportunity. And then when you came here, you worked all day long. You're like, hey, where's the opportunity everybody was talking about? But I remember they never taught us those things. And speaking to some of my family that are still there right now, they're still looking forward to getting out and coming to the United States, going to Great Britain, London, and things as such. So it was not until I actually came to Richmond, even when I was in Prince William County as a police officer, I never had that opportunity to actually learn and understand my history. It was recently when I started having some deep conversations with some pretty good brothers around here that actually that actually educated me on some things and showed me some things and basically what's going on in Richmond right now. I've actually looked up some things to say, this goes way back. Sure. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, not just, it's not just the one incident. Yeah. It goes way back. Um, and if I have time, I can jump on that real quick about how the history of policing and community, it's a slope. It's a slippery slope. Um if we go all the way back to the 1800s and the early 1900s, um, uh, in Great Britain or in London, there was a guy named Saurabh Peel, and he wanted to um, distinguish, he was one of the first guys to push policing in London. He wanted to uh, get the um, look from a military uniform to uh, not to be mistaken with the police. So, because the uh, Britain army used to wear, I believe, red. And then so they switched the policing uniform to be blue. So that's where blue comes from. And then so he did not want folks to actually think that the police were going to be militarized. And now we see things about policing being militarized so much. So it's like we're reverting back to that fight in 1820s when that happened. And going all the way down to um, if you go up to uh, uh, New England, uh, the northern states, and then the southern states before slavery was even abolished, Policing have a really, really weird background, which they don't teach you much about. And I never remember getting that history at all when I went through the academy in uh, 2005. And I'm still reviewing academy curriculums right now. I don't see uh, what I'm about to talk about is being taught in those academies. Uh, This is something called the slave patrol. Uh, What happened is that um, in the north, you have um, folks who are not for slavery. And then so their police departments was basically, uh, when they initiated the larger police departments, they basically had the watch system, the constable, the, shir- the, uh, the the Shire Reeves. So they basically just respond to different kind of calls, informal type police force. And in the south, they basically had things called the slave patrol. So these guys were chasing down slaves. And I recently looked up the, the slave patrols had an oath. It was it was like an oath say, hey, I would, I would track down slaves. I would find weapons in them, and I would kill them, and I would hunt them. And then if you look at the law enforcement oath right now, you just switch words around. You basically can see the slave patrol oath on there. Really? So just imagine wow. you have slave patrols in the South, and then um, that's those folks, when slavery got abolished, even though slave patrols were still there, those were 90% of the folks that actually just switched their uniform around, took off the badge, the slave patrol badge, and, take, and took off the uh, slave patrol roles, became police officers in the South. So that mentality is still there. The uniform is gone, but the mentality is still there. So I do understand the cries right now when someone says, "I am still seeing slave patrols in policing," hmm. and so these are some of the things that I'm working with um, when it comes down to the police departments So teach the recruits in the academy, teach your seasoned officers. Let's just let's just let's just play the um, uh, um, um, different role real quick. You walk into a police academy and you see thirty recruits there, two black recruits and 28 white recruits, and they are ready to hit the streets. They are being taught things. You give them two days of uh, education on slave patrols and teach them how slave patrol was back in the days, how it's basically just a switch of uniforms, and then the mentality was there. And then you send them out in the streets. So let's say short that education you just gave them would resonate with them when they get out there to say, it's our duty to get out here as a white police officers to say, I want to change this mentality. I don't I don't want to be looked at looked at as a slave patrol at all. So if we are pushing those things within the police department, it might have some effect somewhat. I don't know how hard it is. I mean, you can change some things. Sometimes you can't change the heart at all. Mm-hmm. And the heart is always everything comes down to the heart. Yeah, sure. So those are some just some of the things that I will be talking about at some point, but I'm not yeah. going to go on too much. Uh, go ahead. Do you um, – Sorry,
2: Matt. I don't know if you're going to say something. Um, no, no. Go no. ahead. Um, now that you're out of the police force, have you personally have you gotten pulled over? Have you gotten and like experienced anything yourself that you're kind of like? I mean, this is what yeah, people are talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah, uh, John. Thanks for asking that question. And it actually started even when I was a police officer. I, I was stopped. I was going through Stafford County and. Most folks um, have a perception about Stafford County and um, Great County. I've lived there. There's a perception there too as well. If you're a minority and you live there, or you actually are traveling through there, and I was coming home from work one morning, um, I had I had uh, I had I had worked a night shift from 9 p.m. to 7 in the morning. I was really tired. Driving to Stafford, and I got pulled over. So I was swerving on the line back and forth, and the deputy pulled up right next to me. And I don't normally wear my uniform when I'm driving because I'm off duty, I'm off. And uh, the first thing he said is, Do you even have a driver's license? Um, why are you swerving all over the place? How much have you been drinking? So he thought I was drunk. So I just mm-hmm. let him ask all these questions and never once said I was a police officer, <laughs> never threw it in his face. And uh, he walked around the car and he, um, they, you know, I was, I was, I think I had had maybe two or three years on. I was driving a, a 2004. Hyundai Sonata. I had some rims on it. I had some nice um, um, tinted windows on there. So, I, you know, I thought I was cool. And I was driving and, and trust me, and I'm sure that's probably why he stopped me. And then, yes, again, I was I was swerving. So he made an assumption that I don't even have a driver's license. And um, he walked around to the vehicle onto the passenger side. My police bag was there and he saw it um, and then he asked for my ID, and so I gave him my ID, and he asked, what are you doing with this police bag? And never once thought that I was a police officer until after he checked me or ran me that he f- that he, uh, determined that I was a police officer. And then his whole attitude changed, saying that you should know better. You're a police officer. You need to watch what you're doing. I never once repeated the the, the uh, incident or complained about it at all. I just I was just too tired that morning, so I got back into my car and drove off. My wife and I had had an uh, incident, too, again, where we leave Um we we got into an accident as well and um this was i think the first month here in when we moved down here in richmond and i was still a police officer for a couple of months when i moved there, but I, I i had just took an extended leave so i could transition into academia but um my son was six month old sitting in the back seat and uh he was in a car seat and um we got rear-ended by um older white lady and she uh, re entered us, almost pushed us into the oncoming traffic because we would stop. And uh, the deputy that responded to the call came up and I remember I got out of the vehicle and I was trying to be cordial and I tr- extended my hand to shake his hand, say, hey officer, how you doing? Barely shook my hand and um, I asked for my driver's license and um, and my and my registration and, and we were telling, we had put in the call that there was a baby in the vehicle uh, he's six months old and he uh, ignored that fact went straight to the person that had just hit us and uh, attended to her checked her to make sure she was okay uh, the way i was thought when i was responding to calls as such um you look at the most vulnerable yes uh babies elderly and things as such um however in this case the person that hit us was fine walking around getting out she was fine she was just going about her regular business confused and maybe something had happened but it, it it didn't dawn on my wife and I until we started thinking the approach was not right i never i never i never complained or questioned it at all but just things like that made us realize that there was a certain type of treatment and i never told him i was a police officer at all i know i was not in the wrong so i ended up going through the um, regular the regular process and then um, and i don't believe she got a ticket for it at all uh, we ended up getting everything taken care of but instances are such as not being a police officer and I know what to do when I get stopped and not to be placed in a category or not to be um, questioned and things as such. However, again, I go to sleep black and I wake up black, I'm still a black male, so that perception is there. Um, And I think our current law enforcement, we have to re-examine the way we portray things out there. And I'll give you another example too, which I was guilty of as a police officer, so we can switch it around some. Uh, There's something called a read-off or a roll call. Where you go into a classroom and in the morning they give you an assignment where you work. So you are getting bombarded with these images saying, suspects is suspect number one, suspect number two, blackmail, wearing such and such, blackmail, blackmail, blackmail. And then so I was working a day shift this one time and this story always kills me. I never once it never once dawned on me until after I got out of police, and that's when I started getting emotional every single time I talk about this story. But I left work all that morning. There, just told us about a younger black male who had just robbed someone not too long ago, and so we were we were on the look for him. And I was patrolling my air, and it was a it was a commuter lot um, down off uh, Prince William Parkway, 234 and Route One, which is uh, Dumfries Road. And this commuter lot was huge, and there was several cars there. That was uh, I was patrolling it, and then I noticed a Honda Civic with four black males in it speeding through the parking lot. So in my mind, I just left roll call saying that look for blackmail and uh, that steals vehicles also and that robs folks as well. And a 100 Civic was one of the highest stolen vehicles back then. It's really easy to steal. And so uh, I noticed that. So I had a reason to stop. My stop was fine. He was speeding through the parking lot because I have justification. So I stopped him, and they, they had just hit the highway when I stopped them And uh, I had my hand on my gun, and I, I, I'm yelling on the radio, I've got four black males in the vehicle, and uh, I just stopped in my such-and-such, and, such and I got straight to the vehicle. I got to the side of it, and uh, I remember I had my hand on my gun, and the driver was stand, was uh, sitting there. He was just a scared little boy, just shaking on the steering wheel. And he turned to the side, and I saw his uniform. He, was, he actually had, like, a jumpsuit on. He was going to Dulles Airport for work. He had just picked up his friends. They were running late for work, 17-, 18-year-old kids, just young kids going to work. I felt so bad about making that judgment. And just imagine an incident like that happened today where the officer is just jumpy, saying, these are kids. They are They are just stolen this vehicle. So he's shaking. to grab his gun out and then reach for something. Trigger goes off. I felt so bad that day. I apologized to him. And then I never spoke of it to them, and, and they were just they were just worried about going to work. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I apologized to them, and they left, and they went for work. I went back into my car. I never thought about it much. I was like, I was just doing my thing, doing my officer's job. It was not until years after that I thought about that scenario, and after I've written about it a couple of times, that I was like, man, I fell right into the category of that. How many times are we portraying so many images to our officers out there and then they get out there and they just place folks in a category and which is called racial profiling. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way back to in, in the early nineties. Actually it goes way back, but it made surface in the nineties when New Jersey state troopers started stopping black males and Hispanic males. And then they got sued um by because they were stopping them because of their race and the type of cars that they were driving. So racial profiling is a thing. It's something that they teach in the academy sometimes. Mm-hmm. How do we address those things? So those are some of the things that we need to start looking at when we talk about reforming police.
1: Um, So a couple of things. Uh, First off, my wife and I, on this trip that we're on, are reading through... Ibram Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist, yeah. and it's really interesting, it actually breaks down uh, some of what you were talking about into different types of racism, and one of them is cultural racism. Yeah. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, he tells a story about remembering being in high school as a black, black male in Northern Virginia, so he grew up in Prince William County. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he remembers, like, you know, there was a, a kid that was from Africa, and him and the other black kids, you know, saying really the most racist, you know, like, you know, calling him a monkey chaser. Yeah, that's probably what, what my story, man. Up.
0: What year was that? Seriously, <laughs> what if you just <laughs> um, talk about may, <laughs> you may have been in
1: class with a now New York Times best-selling author. Oh man. <laughs> Um, but he talks about, yeah. and, and he has this great whole chapter on, on cultural racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't really have anything to add. It's just an uh, interesting to hear your first person account of it for, and yeah, being in the same, <laughs> in the same area. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe that's just a plug for the book, but uh, very interesting to hear your take yeah. on that because it really puts you in a spot where, as you've said, um, you kind of don't fit in any, you know, it's hard to fit in anywhere, cool. um, in any situation. Um, secondly, um, what do you think? So what do you think the role is of new recruits in policing and the mindset that they have coming in? So you shared with your story, your mindset, the thing that, the thing that uh, drove you toward that career path was this, this thing that happened to you in the country that you're from. Um, which in some ways gives you a very clear and very, we'll call it ethical, um, idea of, okay, this is what happens when there's no law and order. Yeah. And so I have a passion for you know, law and order because I've seen in my country what happens. What On the flip side, what do you think the role is of someone who, regardless of their race, is maybe coming in like – Uh, did some time as a Marine, maybe did some time overseas, you know, as a a U.S. soldier, or maybe grew up in a certain part of our country. Like, what do you think the role is of the mindset coming in, in good or bad decisions moving forward as as an officer, as a career?
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. And... uh, Officers, they have a they have a pretty extensive selection process. One of those processes is the uh, psychological effect uh, or the, the psychological process when you go through a test, and they basically you take five, six hundred questions or multiple choice. Some of them are verbal questions, and they try to weed out and see how much uh, if you are racist or if you are. If you are gonna be blackmailed or if you um if you have something against children or if you have something for children or something against women, something for women or males, so they try to weed those things out and are those tests accurate to a point, still folks get past that process and then they become um they become something else. they become officers that are doing things now that we we are still questioning. So things are in place to weed people out to get that mindset straight. However, the question you ask, about the mindset plays a greater role because for me, I had something that pushed me, that actually motivated me. And there was a study done not too long ago. um, I think it's called Melbourne uh, Police Department. And the the chief came in and basically um, fired everyone and said, you're going to have to reapply for your jobs, literally from scratch, because he wanted to interview them. He wanted to ask them why they got into law enforcement what are their motives? Because if their hearts and their motivation doesn't change, then they will become something else. So the motivation is that uh, a lot of folks bring in various aspects when it comes down to being a police officer. Some of them for good, some of them for bad, some of them they've had issues in the past and they like the authority. It's a lot of authority to hold that badge and the gun and to actually have the authority or the, um, the, um, the the. the, the leverage to take someone's uh, rights and liberties from them. uh it's folks will never understand how a police officer how much right a police officer has until you have been in their shoes because you literally have the right to tell someone you're under arrest turn around put your hands behind your back stripping them from everything that they've had so it takes a huge responsibility so if someone with an ulterior motive gets into that career we will see bad things that we, like what we're seeing right now i say it's a pretty broad question, uh Matt. It's that it's really hard to tell those hearts of folks. I think we can get to the officers at the academy level whilst they're in the academy. I mean, they go through six plus months of training. I know a lot of folks are saying more training, more training, more training. We probably can add more training to policing because they are in there for six months. So if there's anything, we need to reevaluate their training. I'll break down the academy for you right now. There's several aspects in the academy. And it's uh, split into like um, you've got legal training, constitutional rights, and then you've got um, practical training where they give you scenarios and you respond to a scenario and they give you a scenario and role players will come in and then they will ask and, uh, and at the end whether you make an arrest or not. And then you've got firearms training where they will teach you when to use your firearm, when not to use your firearm, lethal force, deadly force, or non-lethal force, use of force continuum, things like that. And they will teach you. Um, and then you have defensive tactics as well hands-on, de-escalating situation, not not pulling your gun out. And they'll also teach you things like driving. So, and then um, uh, after driving, you probably got one or two more lessons there where it's like, um, it's called community service. Our community service has 20%, 30%, and I'm just throwing a number out there. It's really small. So in order to change that mindset, so let's say anybody, uh, folks come into the policing from the military uh, background, good or bad, you split that 50-50, or 60-40, wherein 40% is about community service, community interaction. And then you've got 60% all the other training that they put on them. I think the mindset will change when they get out there to say, I want to interact with folks. There's an excellent, uh, good friend of ours, um, she's the chief of police for, I believe, uh, Charlottesville. um, And a lot of things have happened in Charlottesville. And um, so she came in and she's tasking her officers to, I think they work 20 days a month, something along those lines. And she said, basically, go out and make 20 conversations during your shift or during the month. It felt a little bit forced on these guys. However, guess what? You do it so much, you will probably enjoy doing it, or you will probably become, it would probably be a second nature for you. Folks start to have, folks have to start valuing those conversations. I wish every officer has my mindset, and I keep saying that because I used to be the officer that would get in trouble because I didn't make much too much arrest, I didn't write too many tickets. I just didn't like that. I like mm. the uh, community service. I like to show up in someone's door. I like to um, uh, uh, check up on folks, and I like to ask questions, and I like to um, just have conversations with them. And I used to work midnights from 9 p.m. to 7 in the morning. Midnight shifts, um, you mostly you were expected to make a bunch of um, DUI arrests, driving under the influence arrest. So it's just a given, you work midnight. you're gonna work areas where there's bars, alcohol is around, drunk in public, and drunk uh, 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 driving while intoxicated. So they keep track of the stats, even though we never had an official quarter that says you have to have five DUIs a month But I never had that many DUIs at all because I didn't go looking for them. And I would get maybe one or two a month. And I remember getting talked to a couple of times saying, hey, officer, worry, uh, your DUI numbers are pretty low this month. And um, then you got officers who are out there looking for DUIs. They love that DUI arrest. And they love to go out there. It saves lives. Don't get me wrong. It does. However, when you put that in the officer's mindset, go out there and look for these arrests and make them it takes away the interaction point it takes away that mindset of having a conversation I'm treating people with respect I have to have conversations with folks yeah one time I remember uh, folks were getting threatened saying if you don't make that many DUI you would end up on a day shift I ended up going to day shift anyway after I finished my um, uh, PhD because I wanted to I wanted a little bit more um, nine-to-five kind of job so but day shift was a whole different schedule because um, you deal with folks that are going to work, folks that are coming back from work, when the um, when the high schoolers were in school, and you deal with day shift type calls, so we were forced to interact with folks because folks were out, folks were at home, folks were working from home sometimes. So I think I think going back to your question, it's a uh, the heart it, it all goes back to the hearts of mind or, or the uh, uh, the uh, hearts of men. And if our hearts does not change and if our hearts does not have the passion to do that job or to be a police officer, if you get in for the wrong reason, it'll come out at some point. Uh, if our hearts does not change, we will never affect that positive social interaction that we all crave for when it comes down to the community and policing. I like how you're um, bringing up the
2: heart issue and the culture issue that is... Because I think that's what is abundantly clear. You, you can have good people and even the majority good yeah. in any scenario but if the culture of something is Correct. bad Correct. it's bad yep. and it's gonna and there's even if you can statistically say right. look how much
0: like yeah, there's like good statistics exactly, you know whatever exactly
2: the culture will still be bad and um, you know there's there's two things that I, I think would be cool for you to address one would be I remember having a conversation with another officer who told me that you um, one of the reasons that they don't speak out against the bad is because kind of the brotherhood mentality, mm-hmm. the fraternity, that you just don't do that. And um, and so he was someone who was just on the verge, and he ended up stepping away from being a police officer and does something else now. But mm-hmm. he he said he couldn't handle it anymore because yeah. that fraternity, and there were things that in his some of his buddies that he was just like, that's how these shootings happen, or that's how, you know, the racial profiling, or that's how these things happen, and he's been walking me through some of that recently, and and if you could speak to that, that would be good, and the second thing would be, um, Matt and I have talked about this too, but, you know, with everything that we see going on, even in our city, um, what are some things that you would like people to know from the police side of things that maybe? I'm not saying it's going to shift anyone's perspective, but like that maybe just brings a little different perspective of like, Hey, like when they're in riot gear or when they're in these scenarios, like here are just some realities. So I know those are two very different things, yeah. but those are just.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, John. Uh, the brotherhood of policing, the thin blue line is something that I struggled with too. And I still do. Uh, and 80% of my friends, are still police officers and I still speak to them and I still talk to them. And, um, when all the um, protesting going on and going on currently or uh, previously, they were in the front lines, and I remember speaking to them. I felt some sort of because of the brotherhood and the blue line. I felt like I left them behind too. I felt like I got out the right time for myself and my family, and in the eyes of God. However, I still felt like I left them behind. They don't think that way at all. They don't, and because I did my time, I think uh, it's some. It's a culture that has to change when it comes down to that brotherhood. And I've been in situations where um folks have covered my back and folks've looked out for me, and I've been in situations where I've looked out for them. nothing detrimental' wearing like what we have today. But now I think about this, I'm like, man that was that was just wrong i've had I've had a friend of mine we were who we were on a call for service. It was a call with someone with some mental issue, and this officer was right next to me, a good friend of mine, and we were standing in the back, and the person had a gun was standing in the patio waving the gun around, and it was really cold outside too. I was standing next to him and this officer was right next to me. He was waving his rifle next to me, swerving back and forth. He was actually intoxicated because he was going through a divorce, separation, and ugly divorce. So, not trying to justify what he was going through. Mm -hmm. These are just some of the real things that he was going through and some officers deal with. So, I remember I got, got on the radio, asked for someone else to replace me, and I yanked him and took him back to his cruiser and contacted someone and told him that he needs to get out of this scene right now because my life is in danger, his life is in danger, he will endanger everyone else. He was upset that I told on him because he was intoxicated, and, and I've seen extreme situations where other officers will cover for him. They'll just basically give him a ride home, say, hey, you know, get out of here, go, cover it up. But I made sure he got the help he needed, and I called him out for that and i've had cases where i'd arrest someone and one time even Jennifer did a ride along with us one time um we arrested someone and i was i was actually in a fight with this person and she witnessed it all which i don't know it was it was the, it was the weirdest thing she did a ride along maybe i was trying to impress her by getting in a fight <laughs> no i didn't it was just a lock that she was riding with somebody else that saved that helped save my life in that fight and Jennifer witnessed it all so i was yelling on the radio Um, you know, I need a taser, I need a taser, and I had a taser on me, but when you're in a fight with someone, you don't even think about those things. So we were able to uh, subdue this person and put him on the ground and put him in my back seat, and everybody was coming from the entire police department because they heard my cries, the brotherhood came out of them. And so they came there, and the guy was already in handcuffs, and one of the officers grabbed him and started pulling him out. Jennifer witnessed it, I witnessed it, and I stepped in and said, no, 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 he's fine, you don't need to touch him, you don't need to touch him. Mm But they felt that need that to say you were hurting my brother, officer, and I'm gonna take care of you. Yeah. But I remember stepping in, and I remember Jennifer and I were talking about it, say, yeah, that yeah, that officer was about to give him something out there because, and I, so I do understand the brotherhood uh, mentality. It's something that has to change. It's something that has to. We need to have officers out there who start calling each other out. I think Richmond PD is putting something in place now that officers have the duty to actually intervene. And call, and if they don't, they can actually get in trouble for that. Yeah. which so, I think is good, it like there, because a lot is. of the
2: pictures that we see in the videos that we see, it's it quite is. often. It is that, that there's sometimes eight or nine officers yep. standing they're by standing. and yes, doing sir. nothing. Yes, you know, sir. which yep. is part of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so yeah, it's some of that is going to change, and I think they're going to be addressing some of that. Where an officer has to have the ability to stop and uh, speak up, because yeah, they're not going to get in trouble. Thing is, they have unions too for policing. That actually covers <laughs> policing. Know. That's a whole different aspect. Union, don't don't get me in that started <laughs> on the unions <laughs> But uh, what do people uh, need to know from the police side? I would say um, there's something called 1033 program, which is an act that gives uh, military um, surpluses to policing, and that's a huge controversial issue as well. Because when folk when the officer shows up with riot gears, and they show up with um, with uh, you know, with with things like um, uh, bayonets and uh, camouflage uniforms and things are such, basically, it's going back to the age that folks were afraid that the military was going to take over. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we need to address. A lot of police departments are starting to strip their officers from that. They're switching from that camouflage uniform to just a regular uniform. We have to have high risk response officers um, and because of the things that are happening, because of hostage situations, because of um, uh, uh, suicidal subjects. And so those things are going to happen. They're always going to happen. Now, how you divulge those resources, it has to be strategically done. So when it comes down to how you respond to those things. So most police departments are looking at replacing officers with social workers now, wherein if it's a mental call, I read something recently about a small police department who was doing this for 20 years, wherein if it's a mental call, not actively engage any weapons or anything, they would send a medic and a social worker to that call. A police officer would just stand by as a backup. Mm-hmm. And so these guys go in there and they would talk this guy, uh, this person down, and then they would take him and get him the help that he needs. So um, I think uh, there was a time that policing got way too much too involved. They got too much on their plate. And the slogan that says protect and serve, I like to look at it as a balancing scale. The protecting arm was getting way too strong. It's like you're just pumping this one arm and it's just getting so big. And then the serving part is just falling down. Mm-hmm. So that serving iron, we need to work on that back. So when it gets back for folks to start trusting the same police and the community can work and they can thrive. So some of the things to know is um, there's always a reason why policing respond to such and such. And now, the severity of their response can be sometimes can be questionable when it comes down to it. So, And that all comes from the administration too. If you have a really gung-ho, all about arrest, ticket-writing um, uh, 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 sergeant or supervisor or chief, they don't care. They will say, go out there and make the arrest. Mm-hmm. But you have a pretty compassionate and understanding administrative uh, supervisor who says, let's treat people like people and let's respect them. And let's go out there and make these communications and these interactions. Things will change. So I think folks need to know, or folks should know, uh, don't paint a broad brush on all police officers. This is a career that I I admired a lot. I did it for 10, 12-plus years. I was immersed in that culture for 15-plus years of my life. And it's something that I found an identity in, and it's something that I am passionate about. I probably will go back at some point and do it again as a reserve police officer at some point. That's how much I am passionate about it. But I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done from the inside right now and from the outside. So um I think folks can get involved when it comes down to policing. There's a lot of things out there that folks can do when it comes to policing. There's Citizens Police Academy. You can go into this academy just to learn about the culture of policing. There's citizens review boards wherein Folks can get involved in those boards where you get to listen and contribute on police officers' complaints. Some of those boards can be pretty powerful where they have subpoena powers. They can investigate the officer. They can make recommendations. They can get the officer fired. They can get the officer terminated and things as such. So folks need to start getting involved in these things and to start seeing how it works. I think we can stand from the outside and question policing so much, but if you're not on the inside, if you've never done that, and um, it's really hard to understand. So as a citizen, folks can get their hands on into a lot of things that are happening within the policing so they can get a better understanding of how to move forward when we talk about police reform. Right. Does Henrico's uh, Citizen Review Board have subpoena power? No, uh, no, they don't. Um, they they are creating a different one right now, which I believe might end up going down that route. So, um, and 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 that's and I believe the common attorney is starting a different position too, which um, folks can call uh, call and complain uh, if they have that doesn't have anything to do with the police, and this is just the Commonwealth attorney's office, so um, they can file complaints through that. And that's one individual or independent review.
1: Yeah, that for those who don't know, that's one of the sort of list of seven demands, uh, from local organizers is the idea of a citizen review board yes, sir. Yes, sir. with subpoena power. Um, okay. so what, we don't want to keep you for too much longer. We're very close to the, okay. <laughs> to our time, but, <laughs> no problem. um, what in your experience, so one of the criticisms that we're hearing right now is that, um, because of su- many civilian review boards not having subpoena power that essentially, um, Inter- it falls to internal affairs and the commonwealth yeah, yeah. commonwealth's attorney but it, that internal affairs is essentially police policing themselves yeah. so that's a criticism right. what was your experience so i recently had a couple of phone conversations with an internal affairs person at rpd because of being involved in, oh, in yeah, yeah, some yeah. some of the protests and mm-hmm. the uh, on you know the macing before um, curfew on june 1 and he seemed you know, he wasn't accusatory. He wasn't asking me personal questions. He wasn't treating me like I'd done anything wrong. Um, he seemed genuinely, you know, concerned about what was going on and wanting to help. Overall, in your experience of 15 years, what is the relationship between internal affairs and the rest of the policing system, again, in, in what you observed?
0: Yeah, the the, the internal affairs, it's... Um it's a separate body. Again, it is within policing, and I just had this conversation with my wife too, and we we're talking about because I was under the I was always under the impression if somebody do you something or if something um, was done to you, uh, you get wrong by the police, file a complaint, file a complaint. That's that's the regular police response. But after what I've seen that is going on, how the how some of those complaints can react to, and some of those complaints can go hurt and some of those complaints complaints cannot nothing can be done i can't stand by behind that statement anymore at all i do trust the system to a point so going back your question i mostly they are not regular officers these are folks that has arrest they, they have like supervisory powers so mostly like sergeants lieutenants captains and so they are above regular officers so they can make those investigations But again, it all falls under the same police department too, and so folks are not gonna trust that too much. Um, And most police departments have had a civilian review board who works hand-in-hand with internal affairs, and then they can actually make recommendations to the chief, and the chief makes the final decision. Again, is that a perfect uh, situation? Probably not, because it all falls under policing. So the internal affairs are still police officers themselves. It's all, you're right, it's like policing, policing others. And so um, can someone be biased or favorable? Yes, it can happen because they can look out for each other, and that's something that I've seen. So I think a hybrid system is what I push for when we when we go to uh, several police departments. Hybrid system is wherein you have some officers and then you have uh, some civilians. Because, again, if you put all civilians in a review board, and so let's just say somebody has had several negative – interactions with policing. And that will affect their perceptions as well when they are on that review board. So you want to have a hybrid type force wherein or hybrid type review board wherein it's it's half and half. So you have folks with different perspectives and interactions in the same room just judging another officer. And that's just my perspective. Uh, from my past, I would say Yes, if you get a call from internal affairs, it's always either you're in trouble or you you have to talk about another officer, which is always unpleasant, and I hated him. And But again, it's something that I can't guarantee to say it's 100% when we talk about our citizens' complaints, because folks do not trust that anymore, and I don't blame them for not trusting that at all.
1: Yeah. Do you... Um, yeah, I certainly... I had good conversations with the IA lieutenant that I talked to, but uh yeah not, nothing has come out of it so far um do you feel like um there is so you talked a little bit about when you were talking about like leaving your morning briefing and then pulling over those young men in the Honda and how you felt a little um not necessarily afraid but a little like keyed up like you were looking for yeah um you were looking for a certain Emotionally, you were heightened leaving your briefing in the morning. Correct. And so that Correct. led to... Um, so there's a little bit of fear um, that's sort of maybe a little too entrenched in the police policing system in which the, the folks on the force are just generally maybe a little afraid or a little heightened going out into the field. And then that causes some of the overreactions that we see. On the flip side of that... Um, Did you experience fear within the department, meaning, like, was there real fear about, like, snitching on one of your fellow officers? Was there fear, and not just fear of discomfort, but, like, did you ever experience fear of, like, well, if I do this... You know, there could be real repercussions from these guys over here, or these folks over here, or the IA guys. Maybe don't do stuff because they are physically afraid that if they turn on their on their friends or their fellow officers, that you know, maybe not that their life is in danger, but they're yeah, yeah. you know, brick through the window, slash tires, like any sort of. Is that fear um, in your experience present interdepartmentally?
0: Yeah, it's it's something that's always there. It all it, it goes back to the question John asked about the blue line and the brotherhood within policing. Is that it's it's not spoken of much, but you do feel some sort of um some sort of um relation to to your fellow officers and uh we like to say some folks are married to their jobs because you work 10, 12, 14 hours sometimes with these folks and when you go home and um, you, with your family, and when you have a minute or two, guess who you're hanging out with? Those guys at the same time. So you don't have anybody else in your outside circle at all. I was able to bridge that gap a bit. Uh, I had a lot of uh, friends from church back when I was a police officer. And, yeah, most times I hung out with these guys. But, yeah, there's a certain amount of fear there that if you say or do something, you will be pissing the wrong folks off. I know a lot of officers who have not been promoted because they um because they've said and done something i have um there was another um officer in prince William county he um, he's a captain now and i just imagine i've i got into the county 2005 I started as an officer 2005 he was a captain when I left in 2015. he's the longest standing captain and he's a black he's a black captain. And um, at some point down in line, he had pissed somebody off in the county, and so he's stuck as a captain. Mm. So never revealed that to me. He had, he had finished his Ph.D. It was, that's how I knew him because we became pretty good friends. Um, he had finished his Ph.D., and he's the longest-standing captain, and uh, there were rumors going around saying that he had pissed somebody off. So he's just stuck where he's at. And he's one of those things that I say— that um, yes, there are some real repercussions when it comes down to rank and file officers. When you piss someone off, or when you do it, it's a hierarchy organization. And if you do things that you're supposed to do, you would get through pretty pretty good and nice. And if you do things, piss people off, sometimes you will not get to get to uh, to get to go where you want to go. So it's kind of a it's kind of a hard mentality and it's a job it, it is i can't justify why it's like that it's the well again it's the culture it's the culture within it and most most professions have that type of culture but it's definitely something that um i wanted to step away from and i remember coming back from work when i had just finished my education and i said do i really want to be in this career i think i can do better with my education outside of policing and um so i, I, I made that decision to leave because um I did not like what I was seeing within policing at that point. So it's 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 def it's definitely something that I say affects officers right now, especially brand new officers and that are going through uh field training because field training is where they partner with a seasoned officer who trains them before they get cut loose by themselves. So that field training officer actually gives them everything they need. I mean, everything they learn in the academy is with them, but that field training officer actually gives them that perception of what it's like to be a police officer. So if that field training officer is someone who's corrupt or who is um, who's had some um, negative perceptions about the police department, about people, he passes it on to the officer. My my um, my FTO was, um, you know, he'd been on for 10-15 years and when we worked midnights, he slept a lot, so I would wait for him to fall asleep, and then I would just kept on driving, and I would take some sharp turns, and he would hit his head on the side of the window <laughs> to wake him up. But, uh, you know, I had fun doing that, and he was a low-key kind of guy. He did not like writing tickets at all. And actually, he got fired because he didn't write that many tickets or he didn't make that many arrests. So yeah. and now I wonder where I got my my policing behavior from. But he got fired and um, because, yeah, he was not pulling his weight in midnight shift, so they shipped him to day shift and he wasn't doing much out there at all. I had one of the highest report-taking officers for the day shift call because uh, report-taking is when you just respond to calls and you have a conversation with folks and you write the report and then you file it. So um, I like doing that. I like the interaction. And so those are some of the things that I think we want to see in policing right now. Do you think, I know we're over time, and and maybe I (laughs) Uh, shouldn't even ask this, but... We can go on all day. When you look,
2: you know you know matt's been down to protest yeah, yeah. you know uh, who knows how many times at this point and then um i've been down several times and we have other folks in our community of course have yeah, gone I've down a lot. out too yep. and you know there is like such a sweet kind of peaceful element to what's happening and obviously part of protesting is disruption mm-hmm. and there's just no way around that that's part of our culture and it yeah, yeah. has been for 400 years and and so there's yep. a part of that where it's like hey protests are going to disrupt protests yeah. will probably break certain laws. Like that's yeah. the way it works. And do you see what's happening now with all the tear gassing and all those? It, do you see that as like, you know, honestly, this is like probably an aggressive, like administration that's yeah. been like, let's take our city back. And it's, it's a cultural thing too. do. You, is that yeah. really what we're seeing here or? Are there any other underlying things that we're missing and, and why that's happening?
0: It could be it could be a little bit of both because um, the police sees themselves as the, um, the ultimate um, rule governing body. So when you have disruption, it will take it, w- it would remind the police to say, hey, you're not taking control. And then when the police is not effective, guess what comes in? Or guess what's uh, threatening the state police? Uh, mm-hmm. Right now we're talking about the city municipal police. When Richmond can't handle it, state police comes in, yeah. and if the state police can't handle, then it goes above towards the federal. So every one of those uh, fighting that tug on war or that battle to say I can keep my city safe. So yes, some administration are gonna order things like tear gas, and it's not justifiable. Even when I went through, we did a riot control, so um, we were trained on the uh, barricades and we were trained on how to respond to those things. Tear gas, I've been gassed, it's not fun at all, (laughs) trust me. And they would ask you to repeat a bunch of things whilst you're hacking up a bunch of crap. And so, But it's one of those things that it's used as a last resort when someone is actually actively resisting and there's a crowd that's not dispersing and when they're doing violence towards the police and they're attacking, that's when you order a tear gas. So the incident that happened in Richmond, I believe there were some apologies issued and there was some statements issued after, after the fact and things as such. So it was I would say it's it's basically an administrative uh concept. It's something that they have to address and what's what what we're seeing in our nation now, there's an underlying factor, underlying issue. Um our generation right now deserve answers. And I fought with things like that too. I I was um you know, I was I was going back and forth when it comes down to the um destruction and when we see some violence Mm -hmm. but you're right, our nation is built on violence I mean, folks got killed where I'm from, um, the rebel united the um, rebel united uh, front folks, the rebels, they killed a lot of folks, they killed my family, they took things from us, they looted from us and so when I see one disruption, PTSD sets in to say they come into my house, mm. they come into my family, they're gonna, and I'm not gonna stand, and I'm gonna stand up for my family again. Right. So I do, but then I had to check myself again, say, hey, 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 this is not a third world country. This <laughs> is the United States. We need to be smart, and at least we think we should be smart. So um, I had to check myself to say it's not gonna happen to you. What happened in Sierra Leone. It was horrific. What happened to me? Two of my brothers that I witnessed it don't even speak on what happened because they wow. are so damaged about it. Not until when I met Jennifer was and I started speaking about our experiences. And mm. talking about it lessened it a bit. So going back to what's going on in Richmond, the underlying factor is that our generation right now deserves answers. And, yes, we've been asking for some of these questions a while. Things were not happening. There was a lot of promises that were made. So when those promises got broken and things are not done, you will get demands. And those demands are coming and are coming. And I And trust me, I had an issue with it at first, and I was like, you know, things are happening, but then why are folks still protesting? But then it dawned on me that there's been protesting going on for years and years and years, and then things were just not, were just shoved under the table, and things were just happening. But things are yeah. happening right now. I can see the momentum, and I can see the reforms that are coming down. And it all starts with, I saw um, a chief of police a couple of years ago from Montgomery County, um, Alabama, I believe, and some issue happened, happened with... Um, several um, African-American folks that were in the church that were not protected by the Ku Klux Klan that were trying to attack them. And I think they burned the church down or something along those lines. So, but that happened 40, 50 years ago. The current chief of police in Alabama um, came up to a, a family gathering they were having at that church. And all African-Americans, there, and, he, and this was a white police chief, he came in and asked for the mic. And they said, no, we're not giving you the mic. <laughs> this is not your place. So he waited, and then he grabbed the mic, and you know what he said? He basically apologized. He said, I was not chief of police 40 years ago when, you, when we did not protect you against the Ku Klux Klan. He said, I'm offering that apology right now. He said, I'm saying I'm sorry right now for what my police department did to you. You know how much credit and trust and credibility a police department will get if they issue statements apologizing right now for the wrongdoings in the past? wrongdoings of um this has to be sincere apologies. Yeah. And it has to be things that we mean. It's to be things that we speak volume to others to say, We are sorry for just not protecting you and not serving you. Um now we want to make it a, a new start. So yeah. we Matt
2: and I prayed with some officer well, started with four, ended with one. Um which <laughs> is a uh, oh <laughs> well, that is a long story that for that's another great, we'll episode, okay, um, anytime, anytime. But uh, yeah. you know, we went. It was interesting because that is what you know. I, I, I had like a little pastoring moment with the with the one officer because he was a believer. So oh, in, yeah. my, in my yeah. head, I was like, "I know you're not part of our community, but I just want to pastor here for a second. Wow, and, yeah, um, yeah, that's great. And I said to him, "I said, you know, you you have a responsibility as someone who's in an authority, and when you're in authority, there, even from a scriptural from a Bible standpoint, there are things that go along with that. And one of them is setting a cultural tone for what you're protecting and what you're doing. And, and I just, I was like, I don't know if I'll ever get an opportunity like this again. So I just said, well, you have to, you have to be the one to build the trust back up and that's got to be heartfelt and genuine and in conversation. And you're going to have to be the one that's going to have to make the step forward. It's not the responsibility of the protesters. (laughs) Exactly. to like lead the restoration it's got to be on the officer's exactly. side or else it, or else we're just going to stay in the spot yeah and he was <laughs> i would say on a scale of one to ten of receptive 4.5
0: <laughs> was is that fair? Was, was, was he? Yeah, it's between four and six. <laughs> was was he just an officer, or was he a sergeant? A he was okay, a, so, you know, so he was a sergeant. Oh, he? oh, sergeant he was a sergeant. Yeah, he, he, was was a sergeant. Sergeant. he was a RPD sergeant. Okay, yeah. so just Im- so just imagine those guys are uh, conditioned to stay there. Someone just orders, barking orders that I'm saying, stand there, um, uh, maintain peace. So it has to come from above, uh, somebody above him. But again, you're right. Someone, if that person's heart is touched. They can make a difference within yeah. the entire force. So yeah. uh, it's it's, you know, it's something. Um, I'm doing some work with a coalition of churches in Richmond too, and they reached out to me, and I had copied you on the email on that. Uh, but they basically just RPD is tasking them to come up with a bunch of things that they can do, and so we are suggesting things like citizens review boards, and um, re- sit through police academy, look at some of the uh, training that these officers are going through. The trainings that I remember going through 15 years ago, all the scenarios I went to ended up in, you've gotta lock the person up, and you mm-hmm. gotta take them to jail. And so you give me a badge and a gun and you put me out there in the street, guess how I'm gonna see everybody. Yeah. So it's gonna be us versus them. So we have to address the current training right now, reevaluate it, not add a bunch more training, just reevaluate it and then see what we can change and what we can add to it, oh, or what we can amend. I think it'd be cool if one
2: day it was you know, we looked out and it was the police chief and he's leading a day of repentance of the Richmond Police Department. Yeah. With all these other things that, you know, as Matt's saying, the seven demands that are there and some of the things that you're talking about being like, let's have a day of repentance and here's what we're putting in and I think you'd see a massive shift. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. I know we've gone on long enough, but (laughs) Cherno,
1: is there anything else um, before we wrap up that that you want to share?
0: Uh, no, I just want to say thank you uh, for having me on here. And hey, Matt, I want to I want to see that book, man. You're talking about. I want to see the author. Yeah, and how to be up. anti-racist. It and look was, up in your yearbook if it's the yeah same. yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> see if it's uh, yeah his name his
1: names his names Ibram Kendi. Ibram um, Kendi, yeah. That
0: name, yeah. yeah. Where is he
1: from is he um dead? he so uh he has you know not not a super anglo last name or you know like yeah, american yeah. last name but his parents are fr- i mean he's he's not from he's from America- he's from here, he's okay, born okay, here and his okay. parents okay. his parents were born here too okay. um but they were they're part of like his dad studied under james Cone. yeah um and they were actually part of they met at a his parents met at an inner varsity event which is Okay. for all the evangelicals out there, pretty crazy, um, but yeah. Now nah, he he just grew up. Uh, he was born in New York, and then they moved down to oh, okay, Prince William okay. County. And you guys are about the same age, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah,
0: but, but yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. And you know, one last thing I would say is, I think you know we need to tap into our resources too, and for folks to know. Going back to the question, like what can people know from a police department's point of view? Um, right now, us black folks are struggling when it comes down to trusting police. We need to tap into our resources, tap into black police officers and reach out to those guys. And I read a bunch of articles recently about how black officers right now are actually facing a lot more conflict within their own race. They've been called Uncle Tom. They've been called um, all kinds of names, a sellout. They've been called uh, I Hope You Sleep Good at Night. Horrible, horrible names by our own community. And I'm just speaking out to say we need to tap into our own resources. And um, like I'm attending a uh meeting tomorrow with a uh, local agency here who's meeting all the black officers in their agency and I'm just gonna be an observer and I'm just gonna watch what they are saying to their chief. It's just the chief someone in all these black officers and um just wanna hear what their opinions are, what they're what they're saying. So tapping our black officers instead of us calling them the enemies and uh they wore that uniform for a reason. I wore that uniform for a reason as well. And um, I love that career, and I still do. And I saw a passion in that career, and I can make a difference. And so I think so do those, those officers, not just the black officers, our white officers too. But if we want to relate to the black officers, and we need to reach out to them and um, tap into them, and, because they can probably reach out to those communities too that distrust police. Mm-hmm. Because then we'll start looking at saying, why is somebody that look like me in that force that I despise so much?
1: Mm. That's cool. good. That's good. Thank you so much to Trino. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: And uh if anyone has uh questions, quips, quotes, or comments, you can email them to stay curious at hillcityrva.com. Um, you can also leave us a review and please do share this episode um so that more folks can get in on the conversation and hear this absolutely, I feel like earth shattering perspective from Trino. Um Uh, coming into this situation. So share, uh, rate, and review. And um, as always, until next time, make sure to stay curious.